0: First Kings chapter 21. Before I read this, I need to apologize to Nathan Daly. I have no idea why, but I just did not see his name and read his name. So John and Catherine, I apologize, but Nathan, you get a shout out from the pulpit. Congratulations on your graduation. We have not forgotten you, although the pastor almost did. We are in a, a series of Looking at the life of Elijah and Elisha, and this is uh, we, we read of them in First and Second Kings. And so, um, <clears throat> part of this is we kind of said this is a post post Easter series where we are looking at what it means to be given grace to persevere, which is a lot of what the early church after the resurre- resurrection of Jesus was experiencing. Um, Christ had come and done this big thing this ultimate thing, Uh, but it didn't mean that those uh, left, uh, those who would still remain after Jesus ascended, that life would go well and go perfect, and it certainly doesn't mean that for us. And so we're asking, what does it mean to live out of the resurrection of Jesus, Uh, and what does it mean then for grace, to have this grace, to persevere in the places that God has us? And that's kind of what we've been looking at in so many different ways through the life of these two prophets, who in some ways minister in very similar circumstances, certainly difficult circumstances. So um, we come now to chapter 21, and I'm looking for, well, usually I print it out, but I do not have those pages, and so I'm going to have to open this Bible. Um, Chapter 21, and this brings us to Naboth's vineyard. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, and I'll read the whole chapter for us. Now, Naboth was a Jezreelite, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria, And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said to him, For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered me, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with a seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in the city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city... The elders and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them. And as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the table. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, "'Arise, go down to me, Ahab king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, "'Have you killed and also taken possession?' And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O, O my enemy? To which he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free. In Israel, And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone, who, anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall Eat. Verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Verse 27. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we pray now that you would teach us, that you would give us your spirit to open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not, that you would do this, not that we would have knowledge, or just, just knowledge for knowledge's sake, or, or, or have some type of unique experience this morning, but that you would actually change us more into Who you have called us to be, which is to change us to be more like Jesus. We ask this for your glory alone, Amen. Um, Thinking a lot about this idea of of marriage, um, doing some premarital counseling, and got enough of those under my belt that. It's, it's interesting at this point, and I've been married for 16 years, when I sit down with a couple, you know, really, here's, here's what you see. And you remember that day. Um, this is before they're married, right? So premarital counseling. And you're trying to figure out, like, okay, how do we bridge the gap of what they know and what I know? <laughs> and that's sort of where the whole marriage experience thing comes into play, And interesting enough, I mean, God's intentions are just as, you know, extravagant when it comes to marriage. He's literally bringing two opposite people, male and female, and he's saying, I want you to be one. Okay? Um, In other words, what he's saying is, is, is your ways will be her ways, and her ways will be your ways. Now, that's not how marriage starts out, from my own experience. As a matter of fact, much of our marriage life, if you're married in here, is the process of learning what it means for your ways to become her ways and her ways to become his ways as the two become one. Right? We might call that sacrificial ministry towards the other. And while that is always done in an imperfect way because there are limitations within human beings, our sinfulness for one, It's a great picture of really what God is calling all of us to, the church, when he says, you are my people. That what he is saying is that by virtue of you being my people, virtue of us being one, because we are united in Christ together, my ways will become your ways. But that is often not only not how it starts out, but it's often not necessarily always our experience either as Christians, especially when we look at topics like this, which are topics of injustice and topics of tragedy, right? There's no limitation of examples of those this morning that all of us could, have put, could point to, and even in our own experiences where we don't ask the question, God, where are you in this? To which we, are, we find ourselves saying, God's ways are not my ways ways but what the gospel wants to do for us and what i suggest we see actually in this passage is change that the more we get to know god the more we the more we get to understand ourselves in him our ways do become his ways and i want us to see how that works out in this passage but ultimately how we see that happening because of what jesus has done for us with his death on the cross Um, This morning, as we look at this passage, I want to see three things. Uh, I want us to look at the perception in this passage as we go through it. It'll be the first 16 verses. I want us to see the reality in the passage, and then I want us to see the surprise in the passage. Okay? So you can probably already guess where we're going with these. The, The perception, the reality, and the surprise in the passage. Let's start with the first one, the perception in the passage There is nothing fun about this story, if you are familiar with it, right? Just to recap, it's a humble farmer minding his business. Uh, He's approached by the king of Israel who asks him for his vineyard. It's right next to his palace. He tells Naboth, I'll either give you a better vineyard somewhere else, or if you like, I'll pay you for what it's worth. What do you say? And Naboth refuses Not because he wouldn't like a better vineyard or because um, even King Ahab is trying to rip him off. That's not even what's happening. He refuses because as, as, as a good Jew, he knows that's not his land to give. It's God's land. This is the land inheritance that we read about in the Old Testament. But it would actually be wrong for Naboth to sell it to anyone, even the king, Unless someone was in dire need. And even that, right? We think about the year of Jubilee when all resources are returned back to the original families. This is God's promise to them. Anything like this would be against God's command and against its rule. It's The, the land especially being so precious because it is one of the tangible ways that Israel knows and is reminded that they are members of God's people. Being in the land is synonymous with being God's people. In the same way that for us, being in the new heavens and earth when Jesus returns is synonymous with us being and belonging to God and his people just to make those connections. The land has been passed down from generation to generation. And of all people who should know and care about this, it's the king of Israel, right, who should. He is almost oblivious to these things. He has but an empty chair whose wife now, Jezebel, does things the Phoenician way as she, con- as she concocts this plan that we read about to actually have Naboth killed. In short, what is going on here is a pagan Gentile is now ruling Israel, which is all of the problem that the Lord uh, told Israel would happen if these are the practices that they continued to underscore. For King Ahab, while it seems he seems in the text to recall uh, some of this law and his indecision, as you heard there in verses four to six, it's Jezebel who laughs at him because where she comes from, whatever the king wants, that's what's law. So what the king wants, the king gets. Uh, these are her uh, ways of doing things. This is what she knows, regardless of the power dynamics. You want this vineyard, I will get you this vineyard. So what happens? Well, Jezebel concocts a plan to lie about Naboth and have him murdered in a very ceremonious sort of religious way, by the way. Don't miss that. She's very smart. She executes those plans. Naboth is murdered. His body and death are covered up. And in verse 16, we read, As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. What do you do with that? If we stop right there for a second, Naboth was actually being faithful to God. Let's not overlook this, it's just sort of a, a Bible story. These are real people, real lives, real families, real friends. He was being faithful to God, he wasn't bothering anyone, and he was murdered for it. This is injustice on multiple levels. It breaks more than half of the Ten Commandments murder, theft, lying, coveting. And at the same time, we were told if Naboth had a, sorry, we're not told, sorry, if, if he had a wife or children, but whatever their grieving or agony might be, we can assume. In fact, what's interesting about this is the way the narrative reads, it's, it's very cold and it's very matter of fact. Then Jezebel did this, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then they stoned the bath. It's very cold. And up to verse 16, the question in the midst of all of this is, where is God? Where is God in the midst of injustice, injustice or, or tragedies such as this? Why did he let this happen to, for all purposes, a faithful person following the Lord? On one level, this story shows us just how bad, again, Ahab and Jezebel were and how far Israel's leadership had moved away from God's covenant with them. On another level, though, this is, sadly, a very human experience where someone with power takes advantage of someone with little power. There is, as I said earlier, no shortage of places to look in history and see this type of human behavior whether in large-scale matters such as world war or political oppression in the form of dictatorships or things that never get seen that no one ever hears about, such as sexual or domestic abuse. All of this has been happening since Adam and Eve left the garden. It is the tale as old as time. But when injustice and tragedy happens in our lives, whether we are the direct objects of that or whether we are bystanders, there is something instinctual that I actually think is very interesting and telling about where we come from, about who we are, and more importantly, whose image we are created in that says, one, this is wrong, this is unjust, but two, where is God? And this is where many of us live this morning. How many times have you either personally experienced this or have read about it in, in, in other you know, places only to be left asking, God, where are you? Why, did you, why didn't you stop this? And the perception for many of us in those moments when that question is asked is that God is not present in this, and that is the perception up to verse 16 in this passage as well. After everything we've looked at, it it comes sort of out of nowhere to see this happen and also to have it recorded and put in the Bible. Nowhere do we hear from God in these 16 verses. He is mysteriously absent. The Lord is, however, not absent from Naboth's lips, but the Lord doesn't speak as we read of this whole encounter. It just happens. To a faithful person who would say, the Lord forbid it that I should give you the inheritance of my father. The writers lead us here in this human of all human experiences, one, to validate the question where is God? Many of us have asked that. But, and, and there's much that can be said about that that we, we have to say for another time, it also leads us here so that we can begin to be prepared for the reality of the situation, which is God is not absent. He's actually right there in the midst of it. And this gets to the second point the reality of the passage, the perception that many of us experience, and that those who certainly love Naboth experience at this point is where is God? And right after verse 16, we find it exactly where he is and that he sees everything. Look back at verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? Ahab said this to Elijah, to which Elijah responds, Have you found me, O my enemy? Yes, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of of the Lord, Though the perception in life, often for us, is that God is absent from the horrible things that we encounter, the reality in this passage is that God is all too present. And the first thing that we are told is that God actually sees everything here. It is no sooner that we think that this account with Naboth's vineyard is over and that Ahab and Jezebel have gotten away with murder and theft, that we are met with the reality in this passage. No, in fact, God has seen everything and he is addressing it. First, God knows where Ahab is at this very moment. He's in Samaria. He's literally standing in the vineyard that he wrongfully claimed, and God names it. Second, it's not just a vineyard, right? It's the vineyard of Naboth. Not only does God know and remember those who are victims of injustice or the tragedies that occur in this fallen world, but the injustice does not change the reality it is still Naboth's vineyard, and this would have huge implications for his family and for those who would go after him. Thirdly, though, God names the very acts of injustice here. Have you killed and also taken possession? And anybody who has experienced tragedy or injustice on any level or form knows that to, to have the, the acts of, Named and and put before their accuser is extremely important when it comes to restoration. What 1 Kings 21 is saying is that God sees all, even when, please hear this, our perception is He is nowhere to be found, or that we can't imagine He would let this happen, which calls us to say, I guess God's ways are not. My ways. But there's something else too before we leave this point that we see. God doesn't just see this, and this is important for many of us in this room, he actually does something about it. He doesn't just see all that happened to Naboth, he administers justice here on the spot, continuing in verse 19. And you, Ahab, or well, he's saying to Elijah, you shall say to him, To Ahab, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs lick up the blood of Naboth, shall uh, dogs lick up your own blood. And then also declares the Lord, going to verse 21, behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up. This is the Old Testament stuff, you know, that we we, we showed up for this morning. And I will cut off from Ahab every male bond and free. In other words, your family line will, will stop. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, and he goes on to read all these things, and then he brings charges against Jezebel and how the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, which has its own insult to injury at this point, right? And you can go read about that, and I'm sure we will. Second Kings chapter 9, verse 30, you read all about what happens to Jezebel. What's the point? God sees it, and he does something about it. That's the reality of the passage, and this is the reality that he is, the reality of our own lives, too, when we encounter such situations. That God sees the wrongs that are committed. He sees those that are are committed against us. And that he also administers justice on behalf of those who have experienced it. Naboth here especially. And while this does not completely fix or heal the pain and wrongness of what happened to Naboth in this situation, it does begin to comfort those affected by it. Because it says that the very person who can fix things and can make this right, which is God, actually sees it. Several years ago when we lived in Texas, I was taking Mayan and Hardin. I think they were third and first grade at this point, so pretty young taking them uh, to go see this fair downtown. And I might've actually, excuse me, if I said this story before, but this is a different way of talking about it. But we're, we're, we're trying to find a parking space and I'm gonna try to set this up visually because it's kind of important. So we're on this road here, we're about to come to the stop sign and there's a sidewalk with sidewalk parking and there's restaurants on the other side of that, just right next to the sidewalk. So if you're in the restaurant, you're seeing the street where we're on. And as I'm about to pull in behind this car, uh, this car that's parked comes out, no big deal. Turns, goes by on its way. And uh, this just, you know, I just kind of stopped midway there, and I've got this Jeep in front of me, and we're at a a light. Well, no sooner did we stop than the the Jeep starts backing up. And, you know, just like he's going to (laughs) stop. He's going to stop, right? He's going to stop. No, he's not going to stop. And before I knew it, like the back tires of that Jeep were in my engine block. And it happened so fast. I've got a first and third grader back here who have no idea what has happened. Probably just now getting over that. <clears throat> um, and so, you know, everybody's okay, but the radiator's busted. It, 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 this was an older car, so I'm just already thinking about the implications of this. It's gonna to be totaled. Insurance companies aren't gonna give me anything for it. Uh, we get out of the car, of course, make sure the kids are okay. Don't wanna forget that, they're fine. And as we're sort of getting out the insurance cars or whatever, this manager of the restaurant comes out, and he welcomes us in. He says, hey, I know you've got to handle all this. Let me, you know, is it okay if I take your girls and we'll set them down here? Brings them ice cream, some appetizer. Real nice. We went back to this place as much as we could. Um, But, you know, I started doing the whole insurance thing with this guy, and, and I'm beginning to be a little more uncomfortable because he's not exactly taking responsibility at this point as a matter of fact he's kind of saying some things well you were you might have been too close to me you know and I'm you know here we go right and my mind is starting to wonder I'm getting more worked up about this and 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 I and I am aware of how you know shaky reports can be from police officers when there's accidents and people hit people from behind there's no doubt in my mind though that this is what this guy did and if this guy is even beginning to think about sort of uh, reversing the claim here that this was somehow my fault when he l- just bulldozed over my car. Um, not only are we going to have problems, I just I don't even I don't have the bandwidth to deal with this at this point. So we started dealing with that information. About this time, the, the manager comes back out and he's, "Hey, I got your kids taken care of." And he pulls me aside, and this is what he says to me. He goes, <clears throat> "He goes, listen, I, I just want you to know." I was right here when this happened. Usually I'm back in the kitchen, but I happen to be right here in the lobby area. I saw the whole thing. I saw where you parked. You had at least, at least a car's length between him. He just kept backing up and backing up. And look, if, if this goes to court or anything, I just want you to know I'm happy to testify. Hands me his card, right? And so let me just say this. That's not gonna fix my car at this point. And it didn't, but it helped in ways that I can't really even express to you of just the anxiety levels coming down of somebody sort of being able to see what I saw, but also validate, right, even restore dignity to the reality of the situation, If it were to be twisted, if it were to be turned, and you know the type of validation that I'm talking about, to have somebody in your corner to be able to say to you, these things happened exactly how you said they happened. You are not crazy. You are right. And I will be your witness. This is exactly what God is saying to us in this text about what he does to all of us who experience the tragedy and the injustices of Naboth. All the wrongs that we experience, all those things, he peers in and he says, look, I see it. It will not go unpunished. And that doesn't fix us. right? We get fixed later. That doesn't fix us. But it brings comfort and validation and dignity to those who have been victims, to those who have been oppressed, to those who have experienced the injustice and tragedy that we are reading about in this passage. And for many of us this morning, you just need to hear that. Again, it's not fixing this thing, right? But what it is is it's saying that there's somebody out there who can and who will do business with it, sees every bit of it. And one of the things that Christians believe that has to be held as we kind of come out of the text and and into our lives today is that, yes, this doesn't fix it, but we do believe in a day when this will be fixed. We do believe in a day when final judgment will come and all of the wrongs, however this will come about, I do not know. But all of the wrongs will be made right. And Jesus is the place where we point to to say that that is the promise of how that will happen. And it's worth sitting here for just a second since we're dealing with the topic of injustice and tragedy and and, and the perception of what what goes on in that situation and wondering where where is God in all this. And now you're telling me he sees it, which actually can create other problems for us. But this is where he wants his ways to become our, our ways. In this situation, not, not to belittle the injustice or the tragedy or anything, but to let you know that I see it and that I will deal with it. And, and Christians have this unique advantage of carrying with them the reality that while perfect justice, perfect restoration will not probably come in this life, it is coming. It is coming for you. It is coming for all the ways that, that, that will never get mentioned, for all the people that have ever walked this earth, for those who, um, who, who trusted the Lord in their most horrible, horrible situations that they experience. He is saying, I see it and I will do something about it. And not to get to the end of, this, of the sermon too quickly, right? But he's also calling the church to move into those places and work towards that end. That's the, work, that's the work that we do as, as Christians, work towards justice, the things that he loves. But this is what he is saying. And, and it is no small thing for Christians to know about what that means for us to live in a world where final justice will happen. It just may not be today. Dale Ralph Davis, Davis puts it this way, the Naboth episode that we can say is no guarantee of immunity only of justice, and that not necessarily this October. But come it will, for First Kings 21 is a preview to 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, 7, which is essentially saying that God will judge. We have the narrative in First Kings 12, but we have the doctrine in 2 Thessalonians 1. God will intervene to bring justice to his wronged people. It matters significantly for you to hear and to know that there will be a final judgment, though all the things that we experience in this world will not be made right immediately or this October. And there are many other things that we could say about that, but for time we have to move forward because we're not through with the passage yet. And this last point is actually the point that brings us a little more context into how God wants us to understand his ways though we experience injustice and tragedy. And this gets us to the surprise in the passage. In verse 27 and 29, it's almost like if we had stopped here, I would be happy with this. Something about dogs licking the blood of Jezebel. Justice served, but we don't. We get... 25 to 29, beginning in 27, and when Ahab heard these words, this is about God's judgment, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon him. His house, the natural progression for for us that we are comfortable with is often one of where is God in this? Then great, the oppressor is caught and sentenced. Then great, even better, justice is served and the guilty do not get away with it. But in God's economy, there is a fourth chapter and it is one of mercy. God loves to show mercy And this is the surprise in the passage, but we could add a lot of other things to that point. This is the frustration in the passage. This is is not the way. This is not my way. Where did this come from? It's not always fair to retone into text, but look back at verse 29. God's words to Elijah, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? I take that as excitement. And while the point for now isn't, is Ahab's repentance real, put that on the podcast. It's not to wonder what's going on in his heart. The point that the text wants to tell us that we might be uncomfortable with is that God is delighted to extend mercy to those willing to humble themselves to repent. The faintest of cries for help, receive God's mercy. In this case, mercy looks like justice delayed, not canceled. Ahab will still experience God's justice for the wrongs he has committed. It will only be delayed because of his repentance In other words, it won't happen before his eyes, as the text tells us. But where humility and thus repentance is found, God shows mercy. And it's perhaps here more than before that we say God's ways are not our ways. My heart says the story needs to end in verse 24. But God's ways are not my ways. And that's actually where the good news comes to us this morning. Because as we turn to this section of the book, we realize that, like, yes, there have been injustices inflicted upon us, right? But we have also inflicted injustices. And before we even start looking at people in the room or in our lives, right? Like, where that's happened, the primary injustice that we have inflicted is upon a holy God. All of us are guilty. All of us are guilty. And this is the dilemma we find ourselves in. And so as quick as we are here to read the story and start pointing fingers at God or even say, where are you in the midst of this? Um, How could you let this happen? What the Bible wants to do is draw this back to yourself. Yes, God will handle justice. God will handle vengeance. And he wants the church to play a role in it. But do you know that you too need mercy? And this is the place where, where actually it's really helpful to jump to that original audience, Right, we've talked about this this entire series. I'll remind us here briefly. We need to talk about this. The original audience being what? Being the Babylonian captives. This was the last remnant of Israel in the southern kingdom before 586 when God's judgment brought Babylon in- into Jerusalem, torched the city, captured Israel, and exiled them out of their lands to go be slaves under the rule of pagan Babylon. There's nothing There's nothing worse than this. There's nothing worse than this. And so it's here that we begin to see, like, what is this story, which this book was written for them? What is it saying to them? And the first thing that it's saying is that though though there are some faithful there and there were, faithfulness does not make you immune to the injustices of this world. I I wish the Bible wasn't saying that, but it is faithfulness does not mean that you will be immune to the injustices of this world but what it also means is that the guilty are the ones who will also be shown mercy and there's two groups that sit here read this listen to this right in captive in babylon right it's people who are primarily innocent in the sense of like we were faithful we we offered sacrifices we obeyed the food laws it was him or her who was worshiping baal that brought in this judgment And for them, God, in his tender ways, is saying, look, I understand. Following me does not make you immune to the injustices of this world. And I'm going to show it to you in a second. But second, and this is the primary primary thrust of the text and the message, is that, yes, and even still, mercy will be given to the guilty. And all the while, what God is doing through the life of Elijah and what he's doing, showing the history of his people to a people who are in the worst place, is, is, is he is trying to get his ways to become their ways. Will you repent? Will you humble yourself? Because if you will... I will show you mercy so fast. Look, I did it to the worst person, literally 25 to 26. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab. If this is what I'll do for him, even in in its faintest remarks, what will I do for those who return to covenantal faithfulness? for those who come back to loving my ways, to those who come back to obedience to my word, to those who repent of the idol worshiping and of all the things that have caused you to be exiled to Babylon in the first place. He is saying, do you know my ways? Because if you do, I am ready to bring you back. I'm ready to call you out of this place. But it's going to require humility. It is going to require gentleness. It is going to require you saying, it doesn't matter how faithful I am, I still and will always need the mercy of God. And if you're reading this and you get to these verses and you just have to hold your nose up to the fact that the Bible says that, that, that God will show mercy to people like Ahab, which I'm sure there are those held captive in Babylon reading this saying the same thing, then you have not met God. You have not met his ways. And this is what brings us to the cross this morning. Because he's not gonna do it for the people held in Babylon. He's not gonna, even as they do come back to the land, he's not gonna do it for them. He's gonna whittle that down to one person, to Jesus Christ, who will go up on a cross, right? And who will, what, Take on the greatest injustice there ever is for a holy God to receive the punishment of sin, to receive your sin, so that the guilty, you and I, might receive mercy. That's how he's going to do it. And in this houses all other things, right? It houses uh, the promise of justice at the end, at the end of times, that, that that justice is satisfied and that God's judgment will come about because the work of Christ has, has done the work that God has sent him to do, and that is to save his people to himself. And those who do not believe in Christ, right, their day is coming. Don't worry about that. Look at the innocent Look at the injustice of Christ for the sake of your own heart so that the guilty may receive mercy. Because when that happens, God's ways become your ways, which means that what? You become someone who humbles himself more and more and more into the person that God wants you to be that begins with repentance. But here's the the thing. It's not just for repentance sake. It's so that you might become people who show mercy. And until Israel tastes that and sees it, they will not take up, as it were, the mission of God to go be God, uh, to reflect his glories, to reflect his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his justice to the world until they've received it themselves. And the same thing is true for us. And as we sit here at the end of the story, as it were, of the perfect one taking uh, the, the full act of injustice upon himself so that, that what the guilty may receive mercy. Christ wants to do the same thing for you. He wants you to taste that goodness, to taste that mercy, not just to feel good about yourself, but that his ways would become your ways, that you would be a person who has received mercy. Therefore, you're a person who gives mercy. Mercy. All of us, in varying degrees and ways, we all, again, in varying degrees and ways, experience the injustice of Naboth. But that's not the point of the story. The point is that everyone, everyone must receive the mercy of Ahab. Those are God's ways. Are you familiar with them? Do you know them? That's who Jesus is. It's not all that he is. We could keep going. But as it pertains to this text, that's who he is. Do you know the Father's ways? I'll close with this. Some of you all are familiar with Luke 15. It's the story of lost things. It's one of my favorite parables, Parable of a lost coin, parable of a lost sheep, and then you get to this story of a parable of a lost son, and then we just, we love it. And just in case you're not familiar with it, it's just a father, had two sons, one asked for his inheritance and ran off, spent it everywhere, doing horrible things, right? Non-holy things, we'll say. Things that are of the line of Ahab. But he kind of turns the corner and he figures, you know, basically his circumstances, he doesn't have anything to eat. And he thinks, if I just go back to my father's house, maybe uh, at the very least I can be made a servant and I'll have shelter and food. And so he's not even thinking about being restored. And so he comes back and we all know how the story goes, right? The father sees him and, and reinstates him, gives him his robe, gives him the signature, that, uh, his ring that would have his signature on it, kills the fatted calf, which was held for the greatest of celebrations, It's a wonderful story. The story is primarily, though, about the older brother, which is not important at this point, but who is frustrated at all this because he's been at home and he's been doing the right thing. And, well, frankly, he doesn't like the mercy and grace that his father is offering this Ahab. I want to say that carefully. But the part of this story that always gets me anytime I read it is the ways of the Father in the story, who, who is really God. And the ways of the Father in the story, the part that gets me, it's not just the, 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 the reinstating with the robe and the ring and, and the fatted calf. It's it's as soon as he sees him, he runs to his son. Those are God's ways. These are his ways to you this morning. These are his ways for those who trust in Christ? Do you know that? Do you know his ways? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you have called us to be people to take on your likeness. You've called us to be people who go from the, your ways are not my ways to know your ways are my ways. And even in this instance where we see all of life in so many ways represented in this story, we see your mercy and your grace and your provision over all of it. And we ask that you do business with our own hearts in the midst of that. I pray that we would be people who would fall in love again, as it were, with your grace and your mercy towards us, that we would be people then who become those who extend. That grace and mercy responsibly, in ways that honor you, in ways that reflect your goodness to us because that is who you have been to us. May this be food for us this evening, this week ahead, as we think about your ways and we think about how you have moved towards us. And whether we are captives in Babylon or whether we are in College Park, I pray that this would be grace for perseverance where we find ourselves.